All right, well, good morning, Parkview East. Um, if you're new here, just want to welcome you. My name is Doug. I'm the uh, campus pastor here at Parkview East. It's a joy to be able to have you worshiping with us. Um, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to take them out and open them to the book of Amos. We are continuing our study. We'll be for the next couple of weeks. And this morning we find ourselves in Amos chapter 7. So if you don't know where that's at, it's a smaller book, kind of towards the middle-ish. I'll give you some time to turn there. While you go there, I will just say this. Um, at Parkview East, we do children's ministry a little different. Uh, it's very normal, typically every other week, for many kids to be in this service, and that's okay. So there might be some noises, some disruptions occasionally, but we welcome them because it means that there is new life in our midst, right? And so we value youth, and so they're with us next week. They'll probably be out there in some capacity, okay? So uh, as you're turning there, uh, again, just want to mention, we're, we're, we're working through the book of Amos. You will be greatly helped if you have your Bible with you. If you don't, Craig is coming around and he will put one in your hand if you put your hand in the air. Um, working through the book of Amos. And uh, I mentioned this last week, but really what we see in the book of Amos is we see one message that, it, that Amos repeats over and over and over again throughout his book. And as I look at each chapter that I have assigned for preaching that week, I think to myself, you know what? I have kind of two conversations that happen in my head. The first conversation is, you know, this whole series could have been condensed easily to just one message. It could have easily been just an overview of the book of Amos, right? That's how I usually start off my week. Usually by Saturday night, I think to myself, you know, really, there's three or four different messages I'm trying to preach tomorrow. So I'm going to do you all this service, okay? Now, I like to stand up here in the power and proclaim the power of the Word through the power of the Spirit. But this morning, I'm going to use a friend to just kind of guide me along, and it's a stopwatch, okay? So I'm going to try to not keep us in here too long. As I got into this passage, um, there is so much going on here. There is so much historical information that... Quite honestly, if you don't have some of the context, it's hard to understand really what is God saying through his servant Amos. It's difficult, okay? And so at the same time, it's glorious and it's beautiful. I'm going to try, though, to tell you this morning what is unique about this message from chapter 7 and to focus on the things that I feel like for us this morning we need to hear the most. So what I'll do, what I do every Sunday, is I'm going to read the passage first, then I'll pray, and then we'll get started. So this is Amos Chapter 7. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout, and behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment of fire. And it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, 
the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword. And Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos, Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile from its land. Let's pray. Father God, as we sit here this morning with your word opened up in front of our face, Lord, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be present in this room and active in revealing to us your son in this text. Lord, I pray that you would be with me as I speak and as I proclaim your message. Lord, I pray that it would be your truth. Father, I pray that you would use your word this morning to compel your people to follow you in faithful obedience. Lord, show us this morning what it is you require from us. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Will not a righteous God visit for these things. Will not a righteous God visit for these things? That is a question that appears in the eighth chapter of the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. Will not a righteous God visit for these things? This question, if you haven't read the book, I would recommend that you do. Even just the appendix at the end of the book is worth the read 
itself. In the appendix, what Frederick Douglass does is really something remarkable. Throughout the book, throughout his story, his telling of his life growing up in slavery, his life in America, what he does is he shows how the Christianity of, we'll say America in his words, the Christianity of the slaveholders and the taskmasters was actually not the Christianity of Christ. He compares those two things. And what's remarkable about the life of Frederick Douglass is that he experiences horrific things in his life. Yet, as you read his story, he makes sure to let you and I know where he stands in his faith. That he has not abandoned faith in a good God. This question, like I said before, appears in the 8th chapter. It does so after Frederick Douglass recounts the story of his grandmother. His, in particular, his grandmother's death. After a lifetime of bondage and servitude to her masters, she was, when she was old and she was no longer of use to her masters, they had callously sent her off to die alone, apart from her family. Her life had been given to raising her children, had been filled with the busyness and the commotion that comes with grandchildren in her midst. And then when she's most vulnerable, most weak, at the end of her life, off she is sent to die in isolation. Douglas could have asked this question, though, at nearly any point, this harrowing story of hope and resiliency. The beatings, the murders... The trafficking of humanity, the calculated theft of family, dignity, and life. Will not a righteous God visit for these things? Continues like an echo, this question. Though for more than just the past injustices of the transatlantic slave trade or the institution of American slavery, scandals and corruption that plague not just our land, but oftentimes our churches. The crimes and the atrocities that fill our timeline and our Twitter feed. A cycle that threatens to churn up our souls on any day of the week. Will not a righteous God visit for these things? As Frederick Douglass stares into the darkest corners of the world, the judgment of God matters. It makes a difference to him. This morning, I want to ask, is there any room in your life any space in your faith for God's judgment, for his judgment. As we walk through Amos chapter 7, I hope that we will emerge on the other side recognizing that there had better be room in your life for understanding and reckoning with the judgment of God. Amos 7 serves as a primer on the relationship between the message of God's judgment and the messengers who proclaim it. Will not a righteous God visit for these things? Oh yes, he will. Oh yes, he will. First thing that we see as we walk through this text, 
is that Amos has been given the charge of proclaiming a rather uncomfortable message, right? Just even as we talk about the concept of biblical judgment, God's judgment, there's probably a good chance that many of us are already beginning to maybe squirm a bit in our seats, right? Some of us ourselves are uncomfortable with the notion of a God who judges. It's God who judges. What we see here in Amos 7 is we see really three different visions initially. There's a fourth vision at the beginning of chapter 8 about summer fruit. And there's another vision that we see at the beginning of chapter 9. So a total of five visions. Though I think just by focusing on what's chapter 7, we'll kind of get to the point of what ultimately God is saying through Amos. The first two visions are alike in that they describe catastrophic events. God brings upon Israel and in the form in which they appear. The second two visions are similar in that they both employ sort of a play on words to communicate the message. But all the visions present a unified message of God's intention to carry out judgment on his people of Israel. Every single one of them. So we'll just walk through these first three that we see here in chapter 7. In verses 1 through 7 we see the first vision is a vision of locusts descending upon the land. It's a picture, the results of God's coming judgment and the swarm of locusts that would come to the land. The timing is very clear. As you read, you'll be able to see that in verses 1 it says, He was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowing. So the timing is very clear. This calamity strikes the nation when it would hurt the most. Most vulnerable time of the year. The king would have already harvested the grain he needed for his military animals. And a a second crop either, one that would have grown from the first cutting or a separate planting, was the final growth of the year. And, And this, leading into the dry season of the summer, what is what would have been used to really feed the entire kingdom. So a devastation on this crop would mean a certainty of famine in the land. This vision bears a striking similarity to what Egypt had experienced, if you remember the eighth plague in Exodus chapter 10, at the hands of God. Israel's sins had become so great that they were deserving a similar punishment to that of their very own taskmasters. It's hard to imagine the depth of devastation that Amos had witnessed led him to cry out for mercy on the behalf of Israel. The second vision, we see this in verse 4 and 6. If you look down, you'll see it there, is the, is the vision of a devastating fire that Amos sees. He sees the Lord calling judgment upon Israel that will consume all of the land. So intense was the blaze that it consumed the great deep, the very source of water, the term the great deep is what we see all the way back in Genesis before God even began to create the world it's this great deep the waters were the earth was covered with this water it's the source of water so even the anticipation the potential of this fire being put out by water was not not possible the great deep itself was consumed Judgment has moved from that which was a natural calamity to that which appears to be a supernatural terror Notice the progression. Things go in these visions from bad to worse. Notice also the source 
of the judgment, the source of this calamity. In both cases, it was the Lord who was initiating the judgment. He was forming the locusts. He, God himself, was calling for a judgment by fire. Now, many people have a problem seeing God as a judge. God who will judge people. Seeing God as the initiator of judgment makes some folks feel uncomfortable. <clears throat> Excuse me. Many have a problem with that. The Bible does not. The Bible is very clear that God is a God of judgment. He is a judge. God hates sin and he will do something about it. He has something to say about the injustices in our world. God will do something about sin and its effects. The first two visions both picture a terrifying reality of God's coming judgment on Israel. But they also both follow a similar pattern. If you look, you will see that God gives Amos a vision of judgment. Amos sees this is what judgment on Israel will look like. Amos then intercedes, he pleads, he cries, he begs God for mercy, and God relents. Amos sees the impending judgment, and he cannot stand the sight. Yes, this is the nation of Israel. If you remember, Amos is a prophet who comes from Judah, the southern half of the kingdom. And he comes into Israel, and he prophesies this message there. Okay, It would be like, uh, this is not a good comparison but I'll try it would be like going from the University of Iowa to Ames Iowa State and delivering some really bad news or just flip it around depending on what kind of fan you are I don't care right it's the same kind of idea like we're we're Iowans yes but man we got a problem with one another right and so here Amos is pronouncing judgment God's judgment to the nation of Israel and he even though these may not necessarily be like his people his kingdom right he still wants, he doesn't want God to do it. He sees these people and he wants God to pull back. He can't stand the sight. He intercedes on their behalf. Please forgive them. God, cease. Keep your hand back. Show mercy. This is similar to how Abraham interceded on behalf of Sodom. In Genesis 18, when God showed him how he would judge the city, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He is interceding on behalf of Israel, praying that God, praying God's character back to himself. God, you are a merciful God. Show mercy. Show mercy. It's a reminder for us that the job of the servant of God is not just to speak the word of God to the people, but also to intercede on behalf of the people through prayer. Does your understanding of God's word and your love for the lost leads you to cry out for mercy. Even those people around you whose sin is terrible in your sight. Whose sin is offensive to you. Do you follow like Amos did and cry out that God would relent and be merciful to those around you who do not follow him, who do not believe in him, who live lives characterized by sin and idolatry? Do you intercede on their behalf? Amos did, right? It's one thing to communicate God's word, but we also do so in love. We pray that God's message would get through to his people, 
that he would extend mercy. The prayer we learn as we read is effective, right? God relents. The next vision is a little different. It's this vision of a plumb line. We see it in verses 7 and 9. It's not a vision necessarily of a catastrophic event like we saw with the locusts and with the fire. But rather it is a symbolic assessment. The Lord God stands next to a wall with a plumb line. Plumb line, if you don't know, maybe a metal weight attached to the bottom of a cord. Very simple thing. It's used to determine whether or not a wall is vertically straight. God would have served not just as the builder of this wall that he was standing next to, but also the surveyor, the assessor. He is measuring the wall to check and see if it had gone out of tilt, if it was no longer straight, if it had drifted from how he had initially built it. He is measuring the wall to see if this wall meets his approval, if it meets his standard. God is assessing Israel to see if she meets his approval. If she, if that nation meets his standard. He may have shown mercy to his people, but he still holds them accountable to his standards of justice and of righteousness. A wall that was once sturdy and straight is no longer plumb. Israel has neglected their calling and their covenant relationship with God that God had made with them. And like any crooked wall, any wall that goes out of straightness, it must be brought down. Folks, in it, we live in an era where standards of morality shift like the wind on a summer day at Wrigley Field. Constantly shifting. Constantly shifting. What is our understanding of what is right, of what is good? From one generation to the next, we live in a world where those standards, the world's understanding of morality is constantly moving. It's a moving target. God's, however, is not. His standard doesn't change. What is his standard? I'm glad you asked. He tells us in Leviticus 11.44, Be holy, for I am holy. When God looks at us and when he desires, what he desires to see in us, the standard of morality, of what is right and good and true, is himself, his holiness, his character revealed to us in his word, shown to us by his son, serves as our immovable standard. As he stands by this wall with a plumb line in his hand, you can clearly see that Israel has failed the test. They have drifted long enough, becoming corrupt, hypocritical, and an unjust nation. And as a result... They would be judged. Certainly, you can imagine standing in Amos's shoes. This was an uncomfortable message, probably for him to deliver. But it was also pretty uncomfortable for the people to hear. The next section we see that it meets actually an unreceptive audience. Amaziah in the section here that we read with starting in verse 10, Amos is confronted by Amaziah. 
He would have been the priest of Bethel. Bethel was, lo was a location, one of two shrines that had been established in Israel. Bethel was in the south and Dan was the northernmost shrine. These shrines ultimately were meant as replacements to the temple. Right? If you remember, again, Amos from Judah, Jerusalem, where the temple was located, was in the southern kingdom. So the northern kingdom, when they divided, the king established these two shrines. Bethel in the south, Dan in the north. The king didn't just build shrines. He also placed priests. These were to be seen for sure as political appointments. These shrines and the appointment of these priests demonstrated ultimately a complete disregard to the law of God. And so as Amos is confronted by Amaziah, this sort of politically appointed priest, we see that a conflict begins to emerge. First thing we see is that this, or sorry, that a conflict emerges and opposition ensues. Uh, first thing that we see is Amaziah accuses Amos makes an accusation. He appeals to the king, accusing Amos of insurrection, instigating a conspiracy to remove Jeroboam. This is a classic sort of move. It's a misrepresentation of Amos's message. In no way did he, did Amos call for the king to be assassinated. He, Amaziah also conveniently omitted the reason for God's judgment and neglected to mention to the king that God's call for the nation was to actually repent and return to him. Okay, so first thing that we see Amaziah do is he accuses Amos. He misrepresents his message. The next thing we see is that he belittles Amos. O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah. Essentially, go back home. Amos, you do not belong here. Your message carries no weight here. You are not from here. Here, go eat bread there and prophesy there. Basically, go make your living as a prophet somewhere else. We don't have time for your message. Your message of judgment on us, are you for real? You have no place. You have no voice at this table. Amos, go somewhere else. He belittles him. Third thing that we see is that Amaziah threatens Amos. Do not Return. Go back from where you came and don't even think about coming here. I'm the one, Amaziah, I am the one who has power. And what I say is what happens. And if you come back here, I guarantee you there will be problems. Folks, the principle is one that we can apply to ourselves that we see play out as Amos proclaims the message. Is one that we can apply to ourselves and surely many of you can relate and identify with. When one is effectively involved in serving God, there will be opposition, there will be persecution, and there will be trial. Serving God, whether in the workplace, whether at home, in the neighborhood, through the church, will result in opposition. There will be persecution. Folks, we should not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. We should not be surprised. Amos 7 tells us it is coming. The Lord himself says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For the same way they persecuted the prophets who were 
before you. When Jesus says that, your mind should go instantly back to the story of Amaziah confronting Amos. Clearly, these two are not seen eye to eye. And their point of conflict, their point of tension, really comes down to an issue of authority. Who ultimately is in control? Who was calling the shots in Israel? Was it the king? Was it the king's priest? Was it Amos? Or was it God? Amaziah was loyal to the king. He, was, he expressed and demonstrated in this interaction political allegiance. Amos' message was disrupting not just Amaziah's sort of religious order. It was also calling into question his political allegiance. His potential for power. If Amos was right for Amaziah, his role, his power was useless. He didn't have any. And so this wasn't just, Amos's message didn't just, wasn't just a sort of have national implications. For Amaziah, they had dramatic personal implications. Amos's allegiance ultimately was to God. Regardless the political, the professional, or the personal implications, he was God's servant. And what we will see next is that he was an unlikely one at that. If you look into verses 14, how Amos responds to this sort of opposition from Amaziah. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Amos was uneducated, as far as we can tell. He was unimpressive and quite honestly he was an unlikely messenger he was a shepherd we find out right he was not a sort of professional prophet this wasn't something that he was prophesying all over the place all the time and now his latest assignment is go to Israel and proclaim judgment there right rather when the word of the Lord came to him he was a herdsman he was a simple shepherd he was a farmer of sycamore figs and this, again, is a reality that we see play out all throughout Scripture. We see it play all throughout the history of the church that God uses unlikely people of this world to carry out his unstoppable purposes time and time and time again. The more unlikely, the better. Right? What qualified Amos to be a servant, a messenger of the Lord. Three things just point out quickly. First, we see that he is dependent on the spirit of God. Verse 14, we see that he lacks all the sort of typical credentials or the pedigree that most prophets would have likely possessed. He did not have the sort of professional resume that you would you know, use to apply to be a prophet if such an application did exist, right? He was simply dependent on the spirit of the Lord. We don't know that he had any experience doing this, any knowledge or understanding of what he was actually stepping into, but rather he was dependent on God's spirit. Folks, we should be dependent on God's spirit too. Many of us can look at our lack of credentials or our lack of education or our lack of understanding as an excuse not to do the Lord's bidding. Amos didn't. Rather, he relied on the Spirit of God and went exactly where he told him to go. 
Second thing we see is that he was obedient to the will of God. But the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Again, probably not the first place Amos would want to go. But God sent him to an unfamiliar sort of territory and to proclaim an uncomfortable message. And the result, we don't even know what it is. Were there any converts? Did anybody even listen to Amos and repent in return? Who knows? It's a good chance. No, right? But Amos obeys God's will. He understands that if he wants to find purpose in his life, he cannot do that apart from the will and the hand of God. He's obedient to God. And the third thing we see is that he is committed to the word. Of God. He didn't shrink back. Again, a difficult message to deliver to be sure. But when God spoke, Amos spoke. Spoke God's word. As difficult as it might have been. Okay. What I want to do is... I want to just leave... We'll kind of run out of time here. I'm about 30 minutes. And I've got a couple of pages left. So what I want to do is I'm going to jump to some exhortations at the end. To, be, to pull back just quickly, the last two weeks, and I would put this week in that same category, have been some maybe uncomfortable messages to hear. They've maybe been difficult ones. They've touched on topics that are um, obviously historically and biblically uh, were difficult concepts for people to understand. And these topics are also in our sort of political and cultural climate right now difficult to even talk about with any degree of understanding because we define things Really differently, okay? So, last week, if you remember, the issues, the, the, the kind of twin-headed monster that Israel has become are these two issues of social injustice and religious hypocrisy, right? And now, this morning, we're talking about God's judgment, right? These are difficult messages. These are difficult messages. So what I want to do, just kind of to wrap things up, is I want to give you four sort of exhortations about how to live in light of what we're learning from Amos. How do we take these, this, this, these, this book that seems maybe sometimes outdated, we may look at it and think it's irrelevant. Hopefully, I, since we've been studying it, you can see how practical and how relevant it is. I'm going to give you four excitations before we leave. The first one is this. Keep your feet grounded. As we consider the reality of God's impending judgment, a natural implication should be our humility. That we are people who keep our feet grounded. That we walk humbly with God. But for the grace of God, we would suffer the same torment that is coming to this nation. But for God's grace, we would be judged and condemned. Aside from his grace, we would be turned away and damned forever. The only difference between us and those who will be condemned in the great, at the great white throne of judgment is the unconditional love and unmerited favor that we have in Christ. That's the only difference. That's what's different between us and those who are ultimately turned away from God at the final judgment. Every one of us deserves to be condemned at the throne of judgment, should be cast into the fire. We fall short in every single way possible. We do not meet God's righteous 
standard. Yet God has taken our many sins. He has placed them on Jesus who bore those sins on the tree. And in doing so, he removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Given us his righteousness and covered us with his blood. Let us therefore walk humbly before our God. The truth of this judgment leaves no room for boasting. It leaves no room for puffed up egos. We are not better than folks because we don't receive this judgment, right? Walk humbly. There's no room for pride. Rather, humility should characterize us as children of our Father. Secondly, open your mouth. Keep your feet grounded. Open your mouth and tell somebody. Would you let somebody know, right? We are to be a people who proclaim this message boldly. It is all too common to see Christians shrink from this, the reality of God's message. It makes people feel uncomfortable. Do I really want to provoke them in anger by talking about God's judgment? What a tragedy it is when people respond like that. The truth of the final judgment should stir us up, even this morning, to be a people who are people who embrace evangelism. There are people all around us who do not know Jesus, who have never heard the gospel, who've never seen the gospel, who do not know who Christ is, how much he loves them, and what he is offering them, right? There are people who will stand at that final day under the wrath of God. Our understanding of God's word, this book being true, and our love for our fellow man should compel us to tell somebody, to open our mouth, to proclaim his goodness and his grace boldly. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, encouraged his congregation to regularly consider the condition of unbelievers. He said this, meditate deeply upon the fate of the lost sinner. And like Abraham, when you get up early to go to the place where you commune with God, cast an eye toward Sodom and see the smoke going up like the smoke of a furnace. Shun all views of future punishment, which would make it appear less terrible. And so take off the edge of your anxiety to save immortals from the quenchless flame. Folks, the reality of God's impending judgment should cause us to open our mouth and let somebody know. Thirdly, keep your ears peeled. Keep your feet grounded. Keep your mouth open. Keep your ears peeled. We have talked at length about God's judgment on Israel as a result of their social injustice and religious hypocrisy. Their horizontal relationships aren't as they should be. Social injustice, their horizontal relationships, their relationships with each other are not as they should be. Their relationship, their vertical relationship with God also is not as it should be. Their heart is distant from God. So God's words through Amos come as an indictment of his people. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul gave a strong word to the Galatian Christians for abandoning the gospel. He says this, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different 
gospel. The Galatians had failed a crucial test discerning the true gospel for a counterfeit gospel, an imposter, a false gospel. This is a temptation that, the, sorry, the temptation that the church of Galatia faced is a temptation that the church of Christ faced every generation, abandoning the true gospel for a false gospel. Today we face false gospels that are no less subversive and seductive than those encountered and embraced by Galatians. One of those imposters is that of moralism. The belief that the gospel can be reduced to improvements in your behavior. I'll confess there's a temptation to read the book of Amos and to believe a moralistic false gospel. That what God requires from us and is calling us to is simply to act right, to behave better. And, and, and regardless sort of politically of where you fall this morning, moralists can be categorized in both categories, liberal and conservative. In each case, a specific set of moral concerns frames the moral expectation. As a generalization, this is just a generalization. It is often true that liberals focus on a set of moral expectations related to social ethics, while conservatives tend to focus on personal ethics. ethics. The essence of moralism, though, is apparent in both. The belief that we can achieve righteousness by means of proper behavior. Folks, that is a false gospel. It's not what God is calling us to in the book of Amos or anywhere else in the Bible for that matter, right? An interpretation of what he is saying here as just moralism, behave better, just do a better job is a lie that will bring, if it's followed and believed, the judgment of God. The corrective to moralism comes directly from the Apostle Paul when he insists that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Salvation comes to those who are justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. We are justified before God by faith alone saved by grace alone and redeemed from our sin in Christ alone. Moralism produces sinners who potentially behave better. The gospel of Christ transforms sinners into the adopted sons and daughters of God. And if we think that, okay, well then I have no, no need then to do things like act justly and love mercy and all that type of stuff. I don't have to do that. Well, you're wrong because it's from this identity as blood-bought, redeemed sinners in Christ, transformed into the, the sons and daughters of Christ. It's from that identity that flows our activity. We extend mercy because we have received mercy, right? That is our motivation. We look at Jesus as the exemplar of who lives this out, who, who was mighty, the Bible tells us, in word. He had an amazing message that drew crowds, but he was also mighty in deed. And what he did, he saw sick people and he went to them, right? He healed folks. He, he filled his, his table, seated around it with sinners and tax collectors, right? The, the rejects of the day. 
Our identity gives way to our activity. And if we flip it around, it's a false gospel. If we think that we are in Christ because of how we behave, we got it backwards, folks. Flip that bad boy around, okay? So, fourth and finally, keep your eyes on the cross. Our salvation comes through God's dealing with sin at Calvary. The cross shows that though God is patient toward sinners, he is not ambivalent toward sin. God hates injustice. Hates it. Though he often stays his hand, but he will not forever. He won't forever. We know a righteous God will visit for these things because a righteous God has visited for these things. We know that when we look to the cross. For you who trust in Jesus, he has stood in your place. He has suffered for you. But he was also raised up and vindicated for your justification. Keeping your eye on the cross helps us know how to live right now. For those who persist in oppression and unrighteousness, it stands as a sign of God's justice. God hates sin and he deals with it. He takes it very seriously. Turn from your sin before my patience reaches its end and I come and visit for these things. But it also offers hope. Turn from your sin and I will pour my grace on you and you will leave your wickedness behind. Even more, it tells those who work for righteousness, keep going. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God and trust that he will vindicate. Keeping your eye on the cross will free you from the need to justify yourself and it will protect you from believing the false gospel of moralism. Instead, we can simply work to imitate and to serve our justice-loving God. So keep your feet grounded. Keep your mouth open. Keep your ears peeled. Keep your eyes on the cross. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much um, for the reality of your gospel as we consider um, who you are and what you have done to make us who we are and tell us what we should do. Lord, we are humbled. Not any of us deserve your grace or your mercy. Lord, but you have not held back. You have not held back. And for that, we are thankful. Lord, I do pray that if there's anybody here this morning who, who does not know you as their Father, as their Lord, God, I pray that you would nudge them this morning. I think for some, this issue of judgment can oftentimes be a barrier, Lord. And, um, Lord, I pray this morning that barrier would come down and your truth, the truth of your gospel would prevail. Lord, we love you. Show us all, Father, how to be obedient to what you have called us to. Lord, it's not easy. In a culture that oftentimes rejects us and our message, it can be tempting to change our words so that they might appear more palatable or relevant. Lord, I pray that the primary concern of your saints this morning will be that of faithfulness and fidelity. 
We love you and we ask these things in your name. Amen.